Section 13 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tad Davis. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masfen Roberts. Book 2, Chapters 42 to 50. Chapter 42. War with the Volscians and Iqui. The Agrarian Law. The popular anger against Cassius did not last long. The attractiveness of the Agrarian Law, though its author was removed, was in itself sufficient to make the plebeians desire it, and their eagerness for it was intensified by the unscrupulousness of the Senate, who cheated the soldiers out of their share of the spoil which they had won that year from the Volskians at Iqui. Everything taken from the enemy was sold by the consul Fabius, and the amount realized paid into the treasury. In spite of the hatred which this produced in the plebs against the whole Fabian house, the patricians succeeded in getting Caesophabius elected with Lucius Aemilius as consuls for the next year. This still further embittered the plebeians, and domestic disturbances brought on a foreign war. For the time, civic quarrels were suspended. Patricians and plebeians were of one mind in resisting the Iqui and Volscians, and a victorious action was fought under Aemilius. The enemy lost more in the retreat than in the battle, so hotly did the cavalry pursue their routed foe. In the same year, the temple of Castor was dedicated on the 15th of July. It had been vowed by the dictator Posthumius in the Latin War. His son was appointed Duumvir for its dedication. Note. Two men, Duumviri, were appointed to supervise the construction of the temple, and appoint the priests who were to minister there. End of note. In this year, too, the minds of the plebeians were much exercised by the attractions which the agrarian law held out for them, and the tribunes made their office more popular by constantly dwelling on this popular measure. The patricians, believing that there was enough and more than enough madness in the multitude as it was, viewed with horror these bribes and incentives to recklessness, the consuls led the way in offering a most determined resistance, and the Senate won the day. Nor was the victory only a momentary one, for they elected as consuls for the following year Marcus Fabius, the brother of Ciso, and Lucius Valerius, who was an object of special hatred on the part of the plebs through his prosecution of Spurius Cassius. The contest with the tribunes went on through the year, the law remained a dead letter, and the tribunes, with their fruitless promises, turned out to be idle boasters. The Fabian House gained an immense reputation through the three successive consulships of its members, all of whom had been uniformly successful in their resistance to the tribunes. The office remained like a safe investment for some time in the family. War now began with Vi, and the Volskians rose again. The people possessed more than sufficient strength for their foreign wars, but they wasted it in domestic strife. The universal anxiety was aggravated by supernatural portents, menacing almost daily city and country alike. 
The soothsayers who were consulted by the state and by private persons declared that the divine wrath was due to nothing else but the profanation of sacred functions. These alarms resulted in the punishment of Opia, a vestal virgin who was convicted of unchastity. Chapter 43. The Vientine and the Iquo-Volscian Wars. The next consuls were Quintus Fabius and Gaius Julius. During this year, the civic dissensions were as lively as ever, and the war assumed a more serious form. The Aequi took up arms, and the Veientines made depredations on Roman territory. Amidst the growing anxiety about these wars, Caesar Fabius and Spurius Furius were made consuls. The Aequi were attacking Ortona, a Latin city. The Veientines, laden with plunder, were now threatening to attack Rome itself. This alarming condition of affairs ought to have restrained, whereas it actually increased, the hostility of the plebs, and they resumed the old method of refusing military service. This was not spontaneous on their part. Spurius Licinius, one of their tribunes, thinking that it was a good time for forcing the agrarian law upon the Senate through sheer necessity, had taken upon him the obstruction of the levy. All the odium, however, aroused by this misuse of the tribunician power, recoiled upon the author. His own colleagues were as much opposed to him as the consuls. Through their assistance, the consuls completed the enrollment. An army was raised for two wars at the same time, one against the Veientines under Fabius, the other against the Aequi under Furius. In this latter campaign, nothing happened worth recording. Fabius, however, had considerably more trouble with his own men than with the enemy. He, the consul, single-handed, sustained the commonwealth, while his army, through their hatred of the consul, were doing their best to betray it. For besides all the other instances of his skill as a commander, which he had so abundantly furnished in his preparation for the war and his conduct of it, he had so disposed his troops that he routed the enemy by sending only his cavalry against them. Note. The cavalry, drawn from the patricians and wealthy plebeians, would naturally, from their aristocratic sympathies, be on the consul's side. End of note. The infantry refused to take up the pursuit. Not only were they deaf to the appeals of their hated general, but even the public disgrace and infamy which they were bringing upon themselves at the moment, and the danger which would come if the enemy were to rally, were powerless to make them quicken their pace, or failing that even to keep their formation. Against orders they retired, and with gloomy looks, you would suppose that they had been defeated, they returned to camp, cursing now their commander, now the work which the cavalry had done. Against this example of demoralization, the general was unable to devise any remedy. To such an extent may men of commanding ability be more deficient in the art of managing their own people than in that of conquering the enemy. The consul returned to Rome, but he had not enhanced his military reputation so much as he had aggravated and embittered the hatred of his soldiers towards him. The Senate, however, succeeded in keeping the consulship in the family of the Fabii. They made Marcus Fabius consul. Nias Manlius was elected as his colleague. Chapter 44 This year also found a tribune advocating the agrarian law. It was Tiberius Pontificius. 
he adopted the same course as Spurius Licinius and, for a short time, stopped the enrollment. Note. This device was frequently adopted in those years by the tribunes in their struggles with the patricians. They extended the protection of their sacred office to those of the plebeians who on public grounds resisted the sovereignty of the consuls by refusing to serve as soldiers. Arnold. End of note. The Senate were again perturbed, but Appius Claudius told them that the power of the tribunes had been overcome in the previous year. It was actually so at the present moment, and the precedent thus set would govern the future, since it had been discovered that its very strength was breaking it down. For there would never be wanting a tribune who would be glad to triumph over his colleague and secure the favor of the better party for the good of the state. If more were needed, more were ready to come to the assistance of the consuls, even one was sufficient against the rest." The consuls and leaders of the Senate had only to take the trouble to secure, if not all, at least some of the tribunes on the side of the Commonwealth and the Senate. The senators followed this advice, and whilst as a body they treated the tribunes with courtesy and kindness, the men of consular rank in each private suit which they instituted succeeded partly by personal influence, partly by the authority their rank gave them, in getting the tribunes to exert their power for the welfare of the state. Four of the tribunes were opposed to the one who was a hindrance to the public good. By their aid, the consuls raised the levy. Then they set out for the campaign against Vi. Suckers had reached this city from all parts of Etruria, not so much out of regard for the Veientines as because hopes were entertained of the possible dissolution of the Roman state through intestine discord. In the public assemblies throughout the cities of Etruria, the chiefs were loudly proclaiming that the Roman power would be eternal unless its citizens fell into the madness of mutual strife. This, they said, had proved to be the one poison, the one bane in powerful states, which made great empires mortal. That mischief had been for a long time checked, partly by the wise policy of the Senate, partly by the forbearance of the plebs, but now things had reached extremities. The one state had been severed into two, each with its own magistrates and its own laws. At first the enrollments were the cause of the quarrel, but when actually on service the men obeyed their generals. As long as military discipline was maintained, the evil could be arrested, whatever the state of affairs in the city, but now the fashion of disobedience to the magistrates was following the Roman soldier even into the camp. During the last war, in the battle itself, at the crisis of the engagement, the victory was by the common action of the whole army transferred to the vanquished Iqui. The standards were abandoned, the commander left alone on the field, the troops returned against orders into camp. In fact, if matters were pressed, Rome could be vanquished through her own soldiers. Nothing else was needful than a declaration of war, a show of military activity, the fates and the gods would do the rest. Chapter 45 Anticipations like these had given the Etruscans fresh energy after their many vicissitudes of defeat and victory. The Roman consuls, too, dreaded nothing but their own strength and their own arms. The recollection of the fatal precedent set in the last war deterred them from any action whereby they would have to fear a simultaneous attack from two armies. 
They confined themselves to their camp and, in face of the double danger, avoided an engagement, hoping that time and circumstances might perhaps calm the angry passions and bring about a more healthy state of mind. The Veientines and Etruscans were all the more energetic in forcing an engagement. They rode up to the camp and challenged the Romans to fight. At last, as they produced no effect by the taunts and insults leveled at the army and consuls alike, they declared that the consuls were using the pretext of internal dissensions to veil the cowardice of their men. They distrusted their courage more than they doubted their loyalty. Silence and inactivity amongst men in arms was a novel kind of sedition. They also made reflections, true as well as false, on the upstart quality of their nationality and descent. They shouted all this out close up to the ramparts and gates of the camp. The consuls took it with composure, but the simple soldiery were filled with indignation and shame, and their thoughts were diverted from their domestic troubles. They were unwilling that the enemy should go on with impunity. They were equally unwilling that the patricians and the consuls should win the day. Hatred against the enemy and hatred against their fellow countrymen struggled in their minds for the mastery. At length the former prevailed, so contemptuous and insolent did the mockery of the enemy become. They gathered in crowds round the general's quarters. They insisted upon fighting. They demanded the signal for action. The consuls put their heads together as though deliberating and remained for some time in conference. They were anxious to fight, but their anxiety had to be repressed and concealed in order that the eagerness of the soldiers, once roused, might be intensified by opposition and delay. They replied that matters were not ripe, the time for battle had not come, they must remain within their camp. They then issued an order that there must be no fighting, anyone fighting against orders would be treated as an enemy. The soldiers, dismissed with this reply, became the more eager for battle, the less they thought the consuls wished for it. The enemy became much more exasperating when it was known that the consuls had determined not to fight. They imagined that they could now insult with impunity, that the soldiers were not entrusted with arms. Matters would reach the stage of mutiny, and the dominion of Rome had come to an end. In this confidence, they ran up to the gates, flung opprobrious epithets, and hardly stopped short of storming the camp. Naturally, the Romans could brook these insults no longer. They ran from all parts of the camp to the consuls. They did not now prefer their demand quietly through the first centurions as before. They shouted them in all directions. Matters were ripe. Still, the consuls hung back. At last, Nias Manlius, fearing lest the increasing disturbance might lead to open mutiny, gave way, and Fabius, after ordering the trumpets to command silence, addressed his colleague thus, I know, Nias Manlius, that these men can conquer. It is their own fault that I did not know whether they wished to do so. It has, therefore, been resolved and determined not to give the signal for battle unless they swear that they will come out of this battle victorious. A Roman consul was once deceived by his soldiers, they cannot deceive the gods. Amongst the centurions of the first rank who had demanded to be led to battle was Marcus Flavolius. Marcus Fabius, he said, I will come back from the battle victorious. He invoked the wrath of Father Jupiter and Mars Gradivus and other deities if he broke his oath. The whole army took the oath man by man after him. 
When they had sworn, the signal was given. They seized their weapons and went into action, furious with rage and confident of victory. They told the Etruscans to continue their insults and begged the enemy, so ready with the tongue, to stand up to them. Now they were armed. All, patricians and plebeians alike, showed conspicuous courage on that day. The Fabian house especially covered itself with glory. They determined in that battle to win back the affection of the plebs, which had been alienated through many political contests. Chapter 46 The battle line was formed. Neither the Veientines nor the legions of Etruria declined the contest. They were almost certain that the Romans would no more fight with them than they fought with the Iqui, and they did not despair of something still more serious happening, considering the state of irritation they were in, and the double opportunity which now presented itself. Note, the double opportunity was first murdering the consul, and then going over to the enemy. End of note. Things took a very different course, for in no previous war had the Romans gone into action with more grim determination, so exasperated were they by the insults of the enemy and the procrastination of the consuls. The Etruscans had scarcely time to form their ranks, when, after the javelins had in the first confusion been flung at random rather than thrown regularly, the combatants came to a hand-to-hand -hand encounter with swords, the most desperate kind of fighting. Amongst the foremost were the Fabii, who set a splendid example for their countrymen to behold. Quintus Fabius, the one who had been consul two years previously, charged, regardless of danger, the massed Veientines, and whilst he was engaged with vast numbers of the enemy, a Tuscan of vast strength and splendidly armed plunged his sword into his breast, and as he drew it out, Fabius fell forward on the wound. Both armies felt the fall of this one man, and the Romans were beginning to give ground, when Marcus Fabius, the consul, sprang over the body as it lay, and, holding up his buckler, shouted, "'Is this what you swore, soldiers, that you would go back to camp as fugitives? Are you more afraid of this cowardly foe than of Jupiter and Mars, by whom you swore? I, who did not swear, will either go back victorious, or will fall fighting by you, Quintus Fabius.' Then Ciso Fabius, the consul of the previous year, said to the consul, Is it by words like these, my brother, that you think you will make them fight? The gods by whom they swore will do that. Our duty as chiefs, if we are to be worthy of the Fabian name, is to kindle our soldiers' courage by fighting rather than haranguing. So the two Fabii dashed forward with leveled spears and carried the whole line with them. Chapter 47 Whilst the battle was restored in one direction, the consul Nius Manlius was showing no less energy on the other wing, where the fortunes of the day took a similar turn. For like Quintus Fabius on the other wing, the consul Manlius was here driving the enemy before him, and his soldiers were following up with great vigor when he was seriously wounded and retired from the front. Thinking that he was killed, they fell back and would have abandoned their ground had not the other consul ridden up at full gallop with some troops of cavalry, and crying out that his colleague was alive and that he had himself routed the other wing of the enemy, succeeded in checking the retreat. Manlius also showed himself amongst them to rally his men. The well-known voices of the two consuls gave the soldiers fresh courage. At the same time, the enemy's line was now weakened— 
for trusting to their superiority in numbers, they had detached their reserves and sent them to storm the camp. These met with but slight resistance, and whilst they were wasting time by thinking more about plundering than about fighting, the Roman triarii, who had been unable to withstand the first assault, dispatched messengers to the consul to tell him the position of affairs, and then retiring in close order to the headquarters tent, renewed the fighting without waiting for orders. Note, the triarii were the third line, generally acting as reserves. They were veteran troops, and their steadiness often restored a battle when the first and second lines had given way. Here, they were guarding the camp. End of note. The consul Manlius had ridden back to the camp and posted troops at all the gates to block the enemy's escape. The desperate situation roused the Tuscans to madness rather than courage. They rushed in every direction where there seemed any hope of escape, and for some time their efforts were fruitless. At last a compact body of young soldiers made an attack on the consul himself, conspicuous from his arms. The first weapons were intercepted by those who stood round him, but the violence of the onset could not long be withstood. The consul fell mortally wounded, and all around him were scattered. The Tuscans were encouraged, the Romans fled in panic through the length of the camp, and matters would have come to extremities had not the members of the consul's staff hurriedly taken up his body and opened a way for the enemy through one gate. They burst through it, and in a confused mass fell in with the other consul, who had won the battle, here they were again cut to pieces and scattered in all directions. A glorious victory was won, though saddened by the death of two illustrious men. The Senate decreed a triumph, but the consul replied that if the army could celebrate a triumph without its commander, he would gladly allow them to do so in return for their splendid service in the war. But as his family were in mourning for his brother, Quintus Fabius, and the state had suffered partial bereavement through the loss of one of its consuls, he could not accept laurels for himself which were blighted by public and private grief. The triumph he declined was more brilliant than any actually celebrated, so much does glory laid by for the moment return sometimes with added splendor. Afterwards he conducted the obsequies of his colleague and his brother, and pronounced the funeral oration over each. The greatest share of the praise which he conceded to them rested upon himself. He had not lost sight of the object which he set before him at the beginning of his consulship, the conciliation of the plebs. To further this, he distributed amongst the patricians the care of the wounded. The Fabii took charge of a large number, and nowhere was greater care showed them. From this time they began to be popular. Their popularity was won by no methods which were inconsistent with the welfare of, of the state. Chapter 48. The Fabii at the Crimera. Consequently, the election of Caesar Fabius as consul, together with Titus Virginius, was welcomed by the plebs as much as by the patricians. Now that there was a favorable prospect of concord, he subordinated all military projects to the task of bringing the patricians and the plebs into union at the earliest possible moment. At the beginning of his year of office, he proposed that before any tribune came forward to advocate the agrarian law, the Senate should anticipate him by themselves undertaking what was their own work and distributing the territory taken in war to the plebeians as fairly as possible. 
it was only right that those should have it by whose sweat and blood it had been won. The patricians treated the proposal with scorn. Some even complained that the once energetic mind of Ciso was becoming wanton and enfeebled through the excess of glory which he had won. There were no party struggles in the city. The Latins were being harassed by the inroads of the Iqui. Ciso was dispatched thither with an army and crossed over into the territory of the Iqui to ravage it. The Iqui withdrew into their towns and remained behind their walls. No battle of any importance took place. But the rashness of the other consul incurred a defeat at the hands of the Veientines, and it was only the arrival of Ciso Fabius with reinforcements that saved the army from destruction. From that time there was neither peace nor war with the Veientines, whose methods closely resembled those of brigands. They retired before the Roman legions into their city. Then, when they found that they were withdrawn, they made inroads on the fields, evading war by keeping quiet, and then making quiet impossible by war. So the business could neither be dropped nor completed. Wars were threatening in other quarters also. Some seemed imminent, as in the case of the Iqui and Volscians, who were only keeping quiet till the effect of their recent defeat should pass away, whilst it was evident that the Sabines, perpetual enemies of Rome, and the whole of Etruria would soon be in motion. But the Veientines, a persistent rather than a formidable foe, created more irritation than alarm because it was never safe to neglect them or to turn the attention elsewhere. Under these circumstances, the Fabii came to the Senate, and the consul, on behalf of his house, spoke as follows. As you are aware, Senators, the Veientine War does not require a large force so much as one constantly in the field. Let the other wars be your care. Leave the Fabii to deal with the Veientines. We will guarantee that the majesty of Rome shall be safe in that quarter. We propose to carry on that war as a private war of our own at our own cost. Let the state be spared money and men there." A very hearty vote of thanks was passed. The consul left the house and returned home, accompanied by the Fabii, who had been standing in the vestibule, awaiting the Senate's decision. After receiving instructions to meet on the morrow, fully armed, before the consul's house, they separated for their homes. Chapter 49 News of what had happened spread through the whole city. The Fabii were praised up to the skies. People said one family had taken up the burden of the state. The Veientine War had become a private concern, a private quarrel. If there were two houses of the same strength in the city, and the one claimed the Volskians for themselves, the other the Iqui, then all the neighboring states could be subjugated, while Rome itself remained in profound tranquility. The next day the Fabii took their arms and assembled at the appointed place. The consul, wearing his pollutamentum, went out into the vestibule and saw the whole of his house drawn up in order of march. Note. The pollutamentum was an ample and graceful cloak, the characteristic dress of the commander-in-chief. When a Roman magistrate quitted the city to take charge of an army or a province, he put off the toga, the civilian dress, and assumed the pollutamentum. End of note. Taking his place in the center, he gave the word of advance. Never has an army marched through the city smaller in numbers, 
or with a more brilliant reputation, or more universally admired. Three hundred and six soldiers, all patricians, all members of one house, not a single man of whom the Senate, even in its palmiest days, would deem unfitted for high command, went forth, threatening ruin to the Veientines through the strength of a single family. They were followed by a crowd, made up partly of their own relatives and friends, whose minds were not occupied with ordinary hope and anxiety, but filled with the loftiest anticipations, partly of those who shared the public anxiety and could not find words to express their affection and admiration. "'Go on,' they cried, "'you gallant band, go on, and may you be fortunate. Bring back results equal to this beginning, then look to us for consulships and triumphs and every possible reward.' As they passed the citadel and the capital and other temples, their friends prayed to each deity— whose statue or whose shrine they saw, that they would send that band with all favorable omens to success, and in a short time restore them safe to their country and their kindred. In vain were those prayers sent up. They proceeded on their ill-starred way by the right postern of the Carmental Gate and reached the banks of the Crimera. This seemed to them a suitable position for a fortified post." Lucius Aemilius and Gaius Servilius were the next consuls. As long as it was only a question of forays and raids, the Fabii were quite strong enough not only to protect their own fortified post, but by patrolling both sides of the borderline between the Roman and Tuscan territories to make the whole district safe for themselves and dangerous for the enemy. There was a brief interruption to these raids when the Veientines, after summoning an army from Etruria, assaulted the fortified post at the Crimera. The Roman legions were brought up by the consul Lucius Aemilius and fought a regular engagement with the Etruscan troops. The Veientines, however, had not time to complete their formation, and during the confusion, whilst the men were getting into line and the reserves were being stationed, a squadron of Roman cavalry suddenly made a flank attack and gave them no chance of commencing a battle or even of standing their ground. They were driven back to their camp at the Saxa Rubra and sued for peace. They obtained it, but their natural inconstancy made them regret it before the Roman garrison was recalled from the Crimera. Chapter 50 The conflicts between the Fabii and the state of Vii were resumed without any more extensive military preparations than before. There were not only forays into each other's territories and surprise attacks upon the forayers, but sometimes they fought regular engagements, and this single Roman house often won the victory over what was at that time the most powerful city in Etruria. This was a bitter mortification to the Veientines, and they were led by circumstances to adopt the plan of trapping their daring enemy in an ambuscade. They were even glad that the numerous successes of the Fabii had increased their confidence. The Annihilation of the Fabii Accordingly, they drove herds of cattle as if by accident in the way of the foraying parties. The fields were abandoned by the peasants, and the bodies of troops sent to repel the raiders fled in a panic more often assumed than genuine. By this time the Fabii had conceived such a contempt for their foe as to be convinced that under no circumstances of either time or place could their invincible arms be resisted. This presumption carried them so far that at the sight of some distant cattle on the other side of the wide plain stretching from the camp, they ran down to secure them, although but few of the enemy were visible. 
note, and therefore they should have suspected a ruse. End of note. Suspecting no danger and keeping no order, they passed the ambuscade which was set on each side of the road, and whilst they were scattered and trying to catch the cattle, which in their fright were rushing wildly about, the enemy suddenly rose from their concealment and attacked them on all sides. At first they were startled by the shouts round them, then javelins fell on them from every direction. As the Etruscans closed round them, they were hemmed by a continuous ring of men, and the more the enemy pressed upon them, the less the space in which they were forced to form their ever-narrowing square. This brought out strongly the contrast between their scanty numbers and the host of Etruscans, whose ranks were multiplied through being narrowed. After a time, they abandoned their plan of presenting a front on all sides. Facing in one direction, they formed themselves into a wedge, and by the utmost exertion of sword and muscle, forced a passage through. The road led up to gentle eminence, and here they halted. When the higher ground gave them room to breathe freely and to recover from the feeling of despair, they repelled those who mounted to the attack, and through the advantage of position the little band were beginning to win the day when some Veientines who had been sent round the hill emerged on the summit. So the enemy again had the advantage. The Fabii were all cut down to a man, and therefore taken. It is generally agreed that three hundred and six men perished, and that one only, an immature youth, was left as a stock for the Fabian house to be Rome's greatest helper in her hour of danger, both at home and in the field. End of section 13